You are really part of a much larger congregation today because what Smuts has just said and what I'm about to briefly say will go before a much larger group. Folks just like you and me. But also what I particularly want to say I hope will go to many church administrators and many of the scholars of the church. For I have two parables to offer you today which are very relevant for 1981 in the church climate to which we belong. First of all, the story of the Grand Inquisitor, written by Fyodor Dostoevsky, that Christian writer of the late 19th century. He told how in the 16th century there in Spain, the heart of the Inquisition, at the city of Seville, Jesus came, longing for fellowship with his people as of old. And it was the day after the execution of a hundred heretics by the Grand Inquisitor of Seville. So Jesus came into the city and there was such an atmosphere of grace and love that people somehow felt who it was. And then a funeral scene and a tiny coffin on the shoulders of men emerged from the cathedral and behind it the Grand Inquisitor, tall, thin, 90 years of age not now in the scarlet garment that had been his when he had condemned the heretics yesterday, but just in the ordinary brown cloth of a common monk. But the mother of the child is there, and she turns to Jesus, If it be thou, do what thou didst do long ago. And so Jesus steps to the casket, and he whispers, Little maid, arise. And the little girl sits up with a smile. And there are cries and sobs from all the people. But the Grand Inquisitor looks at who it is. And he knows who it is. And he says to his guards, take him and put him in the bottom dungeon. And Jesus allows himself to be taken. And he's left in the dungeon through most of the night. And then at last comes the Grand Inquisitor. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Why? Why have you come? Why have you come? Years ago, he said, you came and you offered the people freedom. But the people can't tolerate, can't bear freedom. We, we the Catholic Church, we made a bargain with the people. We said, surrender your freedom 
and we will give you happiness and peace. You won't have to make decisions. Just do what we tell you. No freedom, but instead peace. We'll make the decisions for you. You won't have any battles. Leave them to us, the church. Now, why have you come? Why? And Jesus looks at this tall old man. And the old man waits. He wants the Lord to say something, however bitter. But Jesus, after a long silence, stands up and advances towards the Grand Inquisitor and kisses him on the cheek. The man starts back as though he's been burnt with a hot iron. And he looks at Christ. He says, go and never come back. And Jesus slowly leaves the dungeon. And the kiss burns on in the heart of the Grand Inquisitor. But his ideas govern, overrule and control him more. And of course that is a parable of the danger of the church, the Christian church in every age and in every place. We would do wrong if we said, yes, that's the Roman Catholic Church. Or yes, that's the apostate Protestant Church. My friends, we would even do wrong if we only threw it at a group we know better still and said, yes, that's them. It is the peril of all churches in all ages as they begin to grow. You see, the Bible orders organisation. It is New Testamental to have elders and deacons. A skeleton without a backbone would quickly become a jellyfish. God doesn't want jellyfish churches. He wants churches with backbone. There has to be some form of organisation. There has to be. But the first men that were called to be elders and deacons are represented by the apostles and the seven deacons mentioned in the book of Acts. Men that were filled with the Spirit and the church people recognised the leaders God had called by their charismatic gifts. I don't mean speaking in tongues. I mean the evidence that they were controlled of the Spirit. Their spiritual qualification was their primary qualification to be church leaders. But as the church has grown in every era and every place, the spiritual has always slidden to the background. And organisers have come to the front who have been able, who have been talented, but who have not always been dominated by the spirit. And when that happens in every church, and I want to stress the every because we are not just throwing darts at just one group. In every church what has happened is that ideals have begun to go down the drain. Rules have begun to take the place. Freedom is exchanged for the peace of doing what they tell us up above. 
but with freedom goes truth. Policies begin to count more than people. That's the test of when this has happened. And when the church loses the fire of the spirit, it has to ignite another fire. So it invokes power, power, power to persecute. In the Middle Ages, it was a church and state union. In more modern times, it has just assumed power by hierarchical government. And persecution always follows the loss of the spirit. Always. Policies. Policies count more than people. And the result is spiritual death and spiritual drought. Now there's a parable in scripture that meets the situation and it's in 2 Kings chapter 3. And we're told in this story about a great army and great drought. It represents any professed army of God without the spirit where officers have come to the fore to organise and to control, who ultimately persecute, asking people to exchange their freedom for the peace of not having to make decisions, the peace of having the decisions handed down. And so here's the story of a great army composed of three kings and their hosts. And it tells us about them in verse Nine, that the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they'd made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the beasts that followed them. Self-sufficient, proud. But how quickly, how quickly the Lord lays them low. How quickly they are found to have no strength and no wisdom and they're entirely dependent upon God. There's no water for the army, no water for the beasts. The king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hands of the enemy, the Moabites. How easily we make providence the saddle to bear the guilt of our mistakes. God is a convenient horse to blame and to place all our packs upon when we err. And these three kings who had moved without wisdom from God, without asking God, are in trouble. But there was one man there that did worship God, Jehoshaphat. And he said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Now what was Elisha doing there? This was an army and it wasn't a salvation army. What was Elisha doing there? He represents the ever-present Christ. The ever-present Christ that even when men are going about their own business, intent on their own way and forgetting God, the ever-present Christ is there, trying to touch the heart. Through tragedy, through emergency, through trial, through trouble, the Lord Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. So Elisha here, the man of God, represents the Son of God, ever present, in every emergency, even when we've done it through our own stupidity, even when we've done it through our own arrogance. You know, I would be very discouraged if it were not otherwise. What Smuts has just said to us really blessed my heart. That is the gospel, to know that God can overrule my past, overrule my follies, overrule my weaknesses, that I always stand in the grace of God, not in the follies of my own stupidity and willfulness. 
that God is with us in every emergency if we're willing to accept his grace. These men were here, their own fault, going about their own way. They hadn't asked God for anything. But God is there to help. God is there for every emergency, even though we put ourselves into that mess. He's still there to help. Well, what did God suggest? You'll notice that in verse 16, the Lord said, Make this dry stream bed full of ditches. That's the way most translations give it. One or two modern ones change it. But most translations give it that way. Make this valley bed full of ditches. Well, that was funny advice. Here they were tired, thirsty. Why go out and sweat digging? That would make them more thirsty. Why make the situation worse? Ugly ditches in this valley. It wouldn't improve the landscape. It wouldn't improve the men. But God said, make it full of ditches. So the remedy is the man of God and his counsel. Elisha. You know, Elisha's a very gentle prophet. He's a real contrast with Elijah. When you first meet Elijah, he's talking about drought and famine and judgment. When you first meet Elisha, he's healing a stream of water and making it sweet. The first judgment statement of Elijah represented all his miracles. Miracles of judgment. You know, if you didn't get on with Elijah, watch out. The lightnings could come down and consume you. That's what he did with two lots of fifty. Miracle after miracle of Elijah was... But Elisha is different. Miracle after miracle is like his first announcement. Healing, health, peace, joy. Elisha is to Elijah what the gospel is to the law. Healing, soothing, peace. A blessed man. And so here's the man of God. But his remedy? Make the valley full of ditches. By faith, obey. Work. You know, without God, we cannot. Now, without, without us, he will not. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's God that worketh in you, but you've got to work out what he wants to work in you. You've got to work it out. We receive the great gift without works, but it always leads us to work in response. Make the valley full of ditches. What's that mean? Well, it means apparently making things worse to start with. It means to make room for the blessing. Because what was the purpose of the ditches? God was going to send them water and he wanted to make sure they had great pools to save it. For all the animals, for all the men, he wanted to make sure there was room for the blessing. He was going to send it. You make room for the blessing. Now, my friends, one of the greatest weaknesses of the modern church and the modern world it has very little room for God. Even the church. Very little room. Room for programs. Room for socials. Room for all sorts of things, but very little room for God. God, my friends, is awful. And I'm using that in the right sense. To really sense God should fill us with awe, whereby we give him his right place. He either matters tremendously or not at all. The church doesn't treat God that way. The church sometimes just throws God the chips because God is a solemn God of truth. To worship God means to seek after truth. God is a God of love and mercy and as to worship God is to follow love and to follow mercy. That's to worship God. 
But the world has little room for God. And the condition here of blessing is make the valley full of ditches. Make room. And you know, individual church members, our lives are so frittered. They're spread out like peanut paste. There's very little room. Life is so filled with things. The worst thing about television is not the emphasis on sex and murder. That's bad enough. The worst thing about television is the practice of the absence of God. What they present on every show almost, except for the synthetic religious shows, is a, a world from which God is absent. No room for God in TV. He'd be embarrassing. He'd want to clean up TV. No room for God in TV. And in the lives of many church people, there's not much room for God. And so if we want the blessing, we have to make room for God. The trouble with so many people in the church is that we sin by being respectable and by omitting the things we ought to do to make room for God. Now, I'm in America today, but even Americans have heard of a man called Bill Shakespeare. You've heard of Bill Shakespeare? The greatest dramatist of all time, albeit an Englishman, but the greatest dramatist of all time. William Shakespeare only ever included one scholar in all his plays, real scholar. He included one man who was a real scholar in all these dramas, tragedies and comedies, and this was about the most capable person, the most gifted character of all the hundreds of characters that Shakespeare brings before us. And he appears, you know where? Hamlet. The great tragedy of Hamlet. You remember? To be or not to be? To take arm against the sea of troubles? Human nature that is prone to a thousand shocks. And then he contemplates suicide to sleep. Perhaps to dream. Ah, there's the rub. He doesn't want to dream and sleep. Men aren't afraid of death being the end. They're afraid it's not the end. They're afraid that the dream may become a nightmare if they sleep in death. Why do I mention Hamlet? What's that got to do with ditches? Well, Hamlet, the scholar, and you see, sometimes in churches, scholars have the most awful temptation. It's not a temptation the same as the administrator's. The temptation of the administrator is to administer without the spirit. To administer without the truth. To administer without love. To administer rules above people and processes and priorities above people. That's the temptation of the administrator. The temptation of the scholar is the temptation of Hamlet the most gifted of all Shakespeare's characters. Hamlet was responsible for murder. What did he do? Nothing. That's how he caused murder. Hamlet's problem was always indecision. To be or not to be, that is the question. To do or not to do, that is the issue. Hamlet caused bloodshed, bloodbath, because he would not do. Now, he didn't break any of the Ten Commandments. Overtly, obviously, Hamlet's trouble wasn't anything he did. It was what he didn't do that led to the murder of others. And in a church, as it grows, the problem isn't only for the administrators, it is for the problems. The problems encountered by the scholars and their biggest problem is not an academic one at all. 
It's the temptation not to do. Now you will understand, as I told you at the beginning, that I am speaking to a wider audience. But we trust that this tape will go to our scholars and to our administrators. And I speak to them as well as to you. In view of recent circumstances, whereby men who have failed to rise up are now being saddled with greater problems and greater problems and greater problems. And I would remind you that when men who ought to do fail to do, they are preparing for greater and greater tragedy and condemnation and blame. We can sin by not doing as well as by doing. And it's not by chance that the greatest dramatist of all time, when he brought before us the most gifted character, chose a scholar whose sin was not doing. So we can be very respectable and go about our business and neglect God's business. We can outwardly keep the commandments of God and be making a contribution, but if we are not courageous where the battle is, God counts us cowards. Make the valley full of ditches. Apparently make things worse. Get in and sweat. I mean sacrifice. Sacrifice. But there's no dodging sacrifice. We can either sacrifice when we hear the call of Jesus and in response to his sacrifice, sacrifice all. Or if we do not do that, if like Hamlet we wander in indecision, if like these kings and their original going forth they feel so strong and so self-sufficient, so full of talent and ability, like any big church, if we refuse to sacrifice at the call of God, then my friend, we'll end in sacrificing everything. We'll sacrifice eternal life. You see, if you look at the end of this story, it tells us what happened how when finally the Lord blessed the obedient response of these people in, in, a, in an emergency situation, when he blessed their response and gave them victory over the enemy, we read what the enemy did. It tells us in verse 27, he took his eldest son who was to reign in his stead. He offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. The enemy, seeing he was defeated, the king took his son and sacrificed him. Remember Tennyson? Tennyson made a little couplet that went like this. The king is happy in child and wife. Take you his nearest. Take you his dearest. Give us a life. You see, from the time of Eden, all mankind has known that the price of salvation is a sacrifice. From the time of the promise about the seed of the woman, all men have discerned, however dimly after the ages of apostasy, that the price of salvation is sacrifice. There can be no religion without sacrifice because our religion was founded in sacrifice. Our religion was based on sacrifice. The father sacrificed his son. And the son was prepared to sacrifice his father. My God, my God, why have you removed yourself from me? My son, my son, because I have made you to be sin. That they who know no righteousness might be made righteous in you. It would have been an infinite sacrifice for the son to have become an angel. 
It would have been an infinite sacrifice for him to come down to an ivory palace with the trumpets blowing and the carpets of red being laid out. But my friends, he became a seed, a seed in the bosom of a peasant woman. And he upon whose shoulder the universe hangs became so helpless as to hang at the breast of a peasant woman, to be born in a cowshed and to die at a gallows. Our religion was founded on sacrifice. And that is the only way we can provide and prepare for the blessings of God. For a church, for an individual that is parched, where there is not the water of the Spirit, the only way out is to make the valley full of ditches. Make room for the blessing. Make room for God. Get in and do something. Do what God says. Be valiant for the truth. Get the dirt out of the way. My friends, a ditch is a grave. Just a bit bigger. A grave. Sacrifice. You know the people who find it hard to die? The people that haven't died a thousand times. To be a Christian is to die every day. It's to die every conscious hour. It is to sacrifice our own desires to the will of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it must mean for church administrators. That's what it must mean for church scholars. That's what it must mean for us in the pew. It means to choose God's will, God's truth, however devastating, whatever mess it makes of our landscape. Make the valley full of ditches if you want the blessing. Make the landscape look dreadful. Get in and sweat. Get in a sacrifice. You've got to make room for God and you've got to dig a grave. Whoever will not take up his cross, whoever will not go to the gallows every day and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. But my friends, when they did get in and dig the ditches, from afar off without sound, it says, there was no great storm in the neighbourhood. It must have been three days away. But silently, mysteriously, the waters began to come down the hills, down into the valley, and fill the ditches. That's what it tells us there. You know when it happened? Look at verse 20. The next morning about the time of offering the sacrifice, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. At the time of the sacrifice, the water came. Remember when Daniel was praying that afternoon and Gabriel came? It was the time of the afternoon sacrifice. When did our Lord die on the cross? The time of the afternoon sacrifice. Blessings always come out of sacrifice. Those that want to live confidently and smoothly in their palace, whether it's an ivory palace of a scholar, whether it's the brick palace of an administrator, or the respectable palace of a church person, those that want to live in their palaces and that don't want a ditch, that don't want a grave, my friends, they will miss the blessing of God because blessing only comes through sacrifice. It was the time of the sacrifice, the water came. And God gave them a double blessing. It says in the scripture, verse 24, when they, the Moabites, came to the camp of Israel, as they looked down on the water, this water of blessing, and they saw the sun shining on it, the enemy said, hey, the kings have turned on each other. There's blood down there in the valley. The sun shone on the water that was a blessing to the Israelites, but it became a delusion to the heathen. And the heathen, as the sun shone on it and made it like blood, they said, those men down there must have fought each other. Come, let's go and clean them up. 
They're dying down there. We'll go and scoop the pool. But they've been deceived. You see, that which is an aroma of life to those who have sacrificed becomes an aroma of death to the heathen. And so they came down, and it tells us in verse uh, 24 that when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and attacked them, and they fled, and they went forward, slaughtering the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, on every piece of land, every man threw a stone till it was covered, stopped every spring of water, felled all the good trees. And so there Israel not only got the blessing of the water, but they became more than conquerors, going on conquering and to conquer. And so, my friends, two parables. They are not meant that I should just use them as an arrow to use as another target. I will not use them right unless I apply them first to my own heart and acknowledge that there are days when the drought is on in my experience. And sometimes the drought has been caused because I've gone my own way without asking the Lord's directions. I have not stopped to tarry with him. I've gone my own willful way. No wonder the drought comes. And I need to examine myself and say, well, how do I get out of this situation? The Lord says, make the valley full of ditches. Make sure you make room for God. Make room in your time. No such thing as a person being a Christian who doesn't have a devotional life. No such thing. There is no Christianity where there's no devotion. The very first duty is always adoration. The Russian peasant that said, my prayer is leaning on the window and I look at him and he looks at me. That's devotion. That's adoration. There's no Christianity without that. It's not Christianity to just read some book against the church or something about doctrine and say, oh boy, I'm smarter than all those other people. Look what I know. That's not Christianity. Christianity is adoration. It's making the valley full of ditches. Taking time for God. It means the dedication of all we've got. There can be no religion without sacrifice. Sacrifice of energy. Sacrifice of money. You know the Jews gave 25% of their income. They had three tithes. Two of them regular. Another one less less regular. 25% of their income. Christians ought to give much more. Not that we prescribe any rules. New Testament doesn't do that. Just says where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. And even the Old Testament says, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. You know, if our offering doesn't hurt, it's not an offering. The Lord never looks at what we give him. He looks at what we've still got left. That's how he measures our offerings. Not by what we put on the plate, what we've still got left over. That's how he measures it. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. But my friends, that will happen automatically if he has our hearts. If he has our hearts. And when we see that our faith is based on the love of God for a world that didn't love him, that it was based on the father sacrificing his son, on the son sacrificing his father, that is, being prepared to lose him, to hang there on the cross without him. When we see that, when we see a God who could take our guilt upon himself in our stead, and pay the price we should pay in order to give us the reward that only he deserves when we see that. There's nothing we can withhold from him unless we are blind or dead. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee that though we get ourselves into messes as organisations and as individuals, thou dost still love us. The man of God is still with the host. Thou would be a foolish host. Thou would be a thirsty host. The man of God is there. 
and the remedy is there. If we will but make room for thee, all will be well. You will give us the immediate blessing. You will make us more than conquerors. The enemy, the enemies of unbelief, the enemies of an unbelieving world will be overcome. Grant, dear Lord, we may have the wisdom as we gaze at thy sacrifice to willingly dig the ditches and to make room for thee. Amen.